still in the book of Mark, chapter 10. We'll be reading from verses 35 through 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Seth, for the worship. Thank you, Jeff, for reading. We appreciate you very much. It's good to see all of you this morning. Zach, it's good to see you. We're glad you're with us. I know one person who's especially glad that you're with us. Thank you for your service, too, by the way. We appreciate you very much for that. Will you all bow with me before we get started, please? We need the Lord's blessing to help us this morning. So let's ask for that. Will you bow? Father, we want to ask that you would please continue to give us grace. Lord, you have already given us so much grace in that you sent your son Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve. Lord, he's the only reason why I can even pray to you now. He's the only one who gets me into your presence. So Lord, we come to you in his name asking for this help this morning. Please open our ears to hear these wonderful truths and open our hearts that we may Take in the word as we ought. We want this word to change us. Lord, I don't think anyone in this room can honestly say that they want to leave this building exactly the same way as they came in. I believe they can all say with me, I need to and want to be made better. I want to be more like Jesus, Lord, even in the next hour, I want to be made more like Jesus. So please use this sermon this morning, along with the truth preached, along with the communion that we'll take after the service. Use it all, please, Lord, to make us more like your dear son. And it's in his perfect name that we pray. Amen. So go ahead and turn to Mark 10 if you're not already there in your Bible or on your device. Mark 10. I've titled this message this morning, Sacrificial Service. Sacrificial service, because that's what, of course, we're going to see from Jesus as the thrust of the teaching here in this text, sacrificial service. Now, you might remember me telling you that the Lord Jesus predicts his death and resurrection three different times in the Gospel of Mark. You might also recall that 
after each prediction, there is a failure on the part of the disciples. Remember that? Following that failure, we get a teaching about true, real discipleship, which is why we find in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10 the richest concentration of teaching on discipleship, because that's where we get the three predictions of the death, burial, and resurrection, and that's where we get the three failures on the part of the 12. Since last week was Jesus' third death and resurrection prediction today, we get the third failure on the part of the 12, and the third teaching in Christ-likeness. Now, you'll also want to keep an open ear because the blunder on the part of James and John is so huge, but also still so common. And you'll want to make sure that you keep an open ear because you're also not going to want to commit that same mistake and you're going to want to listen for the main verse that the book of Mark is really wrapped around. We find it in our section today. It's really the main point of why Jesus came and he tells it. And it's the truth that this gospel is wrapped around. So let's jump right in then, okay? Verse 35. Look at this. Verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him, that's Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Just a small request, right? No big deal. (laughs) Though shocking to read it so blatantly as we see it here, because it is really shocking just to hear that statement. This has been mankind's mindset when relating to his God for quite some time. Anthropologists, as they've gone over the world and, and found different people groups all over the world, they've also found, of course, that people are religious all over the world. People in any nation that they find them, almost every single one of them had some sort of religion. And in that religion, what's also been found is what's common all over the world of all of these man-made religions is they try to do one thing or another in order to appease their God and get him or her or it to do for them what they want. Now, whether it's to have a successful crop that year, or whether it's healing for someone, or whether it's giving them a child, or giving them a certain kind of child, a boy or a girl, or whether it's keeping a storm from destroying the home. All these people have this in common. They seek their deity him, her, or it, to get from him, her, or it something that they want. That's why a natural man, without the Spirit of God, seeks his God for what he can get from his God. Now, we know that the one true God, the Almighty God of sacred Scripture, he does bless those who truly follow him. Of course, that's a That is a byproduct of Christianity, truly 
following, loving, serving the Lord God will result in blessings from that God, but to seek him only for the blessing would, of course, be selfish and wrong and show that you have wrong motives. Just like if you got into a physical relationship here with someone else, only for what that person could give you, wouldn't that be wrong? Absolutely it would. And if your significant other found out about that, I can assure you that relationship would be short-lived because it would be built on wrong and selfish motives. The only way that we can truly follow the Lord God and have it be from real heartfelt motives is a work of the Holy Spirit causing man to be born again because otherwise we'll just operate in our natural tendencies, which our natural tendencies are sinful tendencies because you and I are born with a natural bent towards sin. It's just there. We do it naturally. No one has to teach you to be selfish. You are selfish. I am selfish in and of myself. And without the Holy Spirit changing me, causing me to be born again, I'm not going to worship God the right way. I'm only going to seek him for what he can give me. Now, this concept of seeking God for what he can give you or any God for what it can give you is an old, old concept. It is not new. But there is something that has, even in our modern day, crept even into modern evangelical Protestant churches. And you know it. It's the prosperity gospel, and it has the same mindset here. God, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Same mindset. Same thing. The likes of all these modern prosperity teachers, you know them, Kenneth Copeland, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, are proponents of this movement that seeks God for what they can get from God and not for God himself. Now, lest you think, oh, heavens, he, he called people out by name. That's not, that's not like Cohen to do that. The apostle Paul called out certain false teachers by name and said, be wary of these people. And so I'm following his example because I also love my flock like he loved his flock. Well, these people, they think similarly to how James and John were thinking at this moment, which is uncharacteristic of the ones who truly follow Christ. Those who truly follow Christ, we follow him for who he is, our Savior from sin. Because we know that's our biggest problem. Your biggest problem is your sin, not the fact that you don't have enough money or a cool car or a big house or the perfect job that pays you a lot for doing a little. Sure, mankind wants those things naturally, but God didn't come for those reasons. He came because of your sin problem. So the fact that they asked this, of course, this goes to show how powerful this selfish tendency is within mankind. And it all goes to show that it's possible. 
It's possible to hear Jesus' words coming from his own lips, and it's possible to see Jesus' works coming from his own hands like they did, and it's possible to even have just heard him predict his own gruesome death, which is just the paragraph right before this. That's what he was talking about. It's possible to hear all that and still focus on self. If you don't believe that there's this deep hunger for self-glorification within you, let this verse convince you of that. Well, Jesus doesn't immediately call them out, but instead he asks them a question. Look at verse 36. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 37, they answer him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, they didn't just dream up this wish. Um, Though we don't get it in Mark's gospel, there was a teaching that happened before Jesus' third prediction of his death and resurrection. Jesus actually says, and we find this in Matthew, Matthew 19, he says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you, 12, you have followed me, will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he already made this prediction that in glory, you will all have special places in glory and have special responsibilities in glory. So yes, he made that prediction to the 12, but even, even a child, even, even a child could understand that there are many reasons why them making the specific request that they did is wrong. <laughs> Number one, let's just, let's just talk about it. Number one, it comes, like I mentioned, right after Jesus' prediction of his death when he said to them, the Son of Man will be mocked, spit upon, flogged, and killed. And James and John, hearing that, can still only think about themselves. Number two, it shows their inflated understanding of their own greatness. Yes, they're going to sit on 12 thrones, but James and John said, we want the best thrones. Thanks for that. But listen, we want to sit on your right and your left. Twelve thrones would be awesome, but we want the best of those twelve thrones, by the way. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Number three, it shows our lack of understanding of how God measures true greatness, which Jesus will once again discuss in just a moment. Well, Jesus immediately tells them that they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> look, at, look at verse 38. <laughs> he says in verse 38, you do not know what you're asking. You don't, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Natural, unsaved, human inclinations are so contrary to what's really important in the kingdom of God. You need to understand that you're almost, almost, because though man possesses the image of God, it has been marred heavily by the fall of sin. 
You need to understand that natural man, before he's converted by the Holy Spirit, almost all of his inclinations are totally opposite to what's true in the kingdom of God. That's why it's so dangerous when the world says, follow your heart. No. Don't follow your heart. I saw something on Facebook that even said, don't be afraid of your desires. Okay. If you're a Christian, led by the Holy Spirit, I would say, that's great advice. Because even the Bible says, he who desires to be an elder desires a good thing. So there are some desires that God gives the Christian walking by the Holy Spirit that are, that are good desires. But the desires of the unsaved heart are traps, and they are dangerous. Man's heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know? The wisest counsel you can receive, the best help that you can be offered, comes to us from God himself, not from any man. Man will often lead you in the wrong way if it's an unsaved man. That's why it says in Psalm 1, don't stand in the counsel of the wicked. This is how God speaks to you. God himself speaks to us from the scriptures with the best counsel we could ever receive, with the best help we could ever get, and it's free. Though it did cost many men their lives to translate it to us, for us, in our English language. You know them. John Wycliffe, William Tyndall. William Tyndall actually paid with his life for translating it into English, as you all recall, as we learned. So don't doubt the Scriptures. Cling to the Scriptures. Instead, doubt your own natural Leanings, your own natural tendencies, your own natural way of thinking, it is to be doubted. This is to be trusted. We'll soon see that service is the way to greatness, not self-glorification and self-exaltation. And then Jesus asked James and John this question that can seem confusing, but with some clarification and comparing Scripture with Scripture which I've told you guys is so helpful. Use the easier portions of Scripture to help you interpret the harder portions of Scripture. Think of them like glasses. You, you use the easy texts, the easy-to-understand texts, and you look through those at the harder-to-understand texts, and that helps you so much. So please take that, use that in your practice as you study the Scriptures yourselves. So with some clarification, what he's going to say here is, is much more easily understood. So let's just look at it. Uh, the second part of verse 38, he asked them a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What does Jesus mean by all that? Drinking the cup he drinks, being baptized with the baptism he's baptized with? What does he, what does he mean? I don't get that. Okay. Well, you all probably recall, though, that Jesus himself has used language of a cup. 
himself. And he does it days before his crucifixion. Remember him using that language? Remember what he says? We find it in Matthew 26. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. But Jesus didn't just make up that analogy, by the way. Jesus is actually borrowing language from the Old Testament, which he did often. You know, it's interesting. When we read the New Testament, we, we, we read and we learn things, and then we go back and we read the New Testament because that's usually the order that we all go. Us Gentiles, we usually start with the New Testament, don't we? And then we go back and we read the Old Testament, and we say, oh, that's where that came from. Yeah, it's been around thousands of years before it was restated in the New Testament. Even a lot of what Jesus says on the cross while he's dying or quotes from the Old Testament. So Jesus is borrowing Old Testament language here about this cup in reference to suffering and hardship and pain that comes from following the path of God in obedience. Sometimes Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, that's just three examples of where you'll actually find a metaphor of drinking a cup and it talking about wrath and or suffering. Psalm 75, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, if you're wondering, and if you want to study those more deeply, just, just come to me and I'll get the exact references for you. Now also baptism is referenced by Jesus. Now what is baptism but being immersed in water? And when we're talking about, of course, Christian baptism in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, that is when someone is immersed in water to show that they have died to the old self and they're being raised up to newness of life in Christ. It's an outward picture of an inward reality. But the baptism that he's talking about here, it's not that kind of baptism. Because... Well, Jesus was already baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. That's what started his Christian ministry, as you guys recall. <laughs> Not his Christian ministry. His ministry. <laughs> of course, it's Christian. He's Christ. Christ is not a Christ follower. He's Christ. We follow him. That's what started his ministry. Jesus' reference here is to something similar that even King David used when he wrote Psalm 69 and in the first couple verses, which I'll read to you, when he's talking about this baptism, it's a reference of being engulfed by water, being underwater. Listen to what David says. He uses similar language here. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire where there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. It's a reference to being in trouble. It's a reference to being in suffering. It's a problem. Jesus even says in Luke 12, 50, listen to this. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. So even after he was already baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, he's still speaking of another baptism he's got to be baptized with, and it's not a literal, physical, dunk underwater again. 
It is the taking on of the suffering that the Father has appointed for him. The cup and the baptism that Jesus were to face in obedience to the Father would lead him to bearing the wrath of God for all who place their faith in him. Now, James and John, though they were much too quick to answer, and though they answered without full understanding, Jesus tells James and John that they will also drink the cup he drinks and be baptized with the baptism, the baptism that he's baptized with that's been ordained for them. The cup and the baptism of trouble and suffering, that results from following God's plan in obedience to him. I have been very intentional about teaching all of you rightly that the Bible does not promise you a bed of roses when you start following Jesus Christ. I've been very intentional about showing you that it's usually the opposite. Because so often, too many times, so many people are surprised by suffering. They think some alien thing has come upon them when suffering comes into their life. And I've tried to show you that when you're living in a world system that hates God, you're going to suffer when you start to follow God. When you start to flow, swim against the flow, not only are you in a world system that doesn't like that and that thinks that's strange and backwards, you've also now got the devil himself painting a target on your back and telling all of his demons, fire. So we learn from Acts 12 that James was actually the first of the 12 to be martyred. We learn in Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, that James was beheaded. And we learn from Revelation 1 that John, as an older man, was exiled to the island of Patmos for his faith in God. And he died there. Jesus predicted this. You will drink the cup and you will be baptized with the baptism. You know, it's wonderful to know. It's wonderful to know this. Listen, I'm going to say this for your encouragement, because if you're anything like me, I also struggle with that temptation for self-glorification. I also struggle with that temptation of selfish thinking, building up my own kingdom, wanting to hear the compliments and wanting to have people say, wow, you, you struggle with that too. I know you do because you have the same nature as I do, my, my, my sin nature. Now, thankfully, we have a new nature in Christ, but the spirit wars against the flesh, Jesus said. You want some encouragement? It's wonderful to know that God can change the heart of a man so much so that he can go from the self centered, self-glorifying way of thinking that James and John had to then being willing to lay down their lives 
for Jesus and not act like cowards and say, okay, okay, we recant everything. Yes, we don't, we don't know that Jesus. We don't follow him. Just please don't kill me. No, they were made mighty and strong. And that's what God can do for you too. He did it for James and John. He can do it for you. He's the same God today, yesterday, and forever, right? He changes not. You struggle with selfish tendencies, wanting to build your own kingdom? I understand that. I understand that. There's hope for you. There's hope for you. The Lord can change you. That's the work of the Spirit. And how happy are those who know it, who know that work. How happy are those who've been changed and saved. But that happiness isn't present just yet in this circumstance that we're in. It's not there just yet. Look at verse 41. Not everyone's happy, are they? And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> Can you imagine? You, you asked him, What? You guys asked to sit at his right hand and at his left in glory? Seriously? Guys, I thought we were friends. I mean, they just basically said, Lord, we want to be the greatest of the 12. If you can make us the greatest, we would really appreciate it. After all, we were there with you when you raised Jairus' daughter up from the dead. you, You called us in. And we were with you on the Mount of Transfiguration. You only called three people up. Peter and me and my brother here. So, and you gave us the name the Sons of Thunder. It seems as though you think more highly of us. Therefore, wouldn't it be fitting for us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory? Wouldn't that be just fitting, Lord? Look at verse 42. Jesus called them to him and said, so that was the failure on the part of the 12. Here's the teaching. Here's the deeper, more rich discipleship teaching. It's short, but extremely potent. You know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. Jesus calms everyone's anger by teaching them, first of all. Let's point that out. Because Jesus even taught, blessed are the peacemakers. Right? Jesus was the perfect example of this. He says, you know what? Let me, let me still their anger by teaching them about God, truth, how to be really great. Jesus is simply saying to them when he says this, because he mentions Gentiles. Gentiles to a Jew. Jews talking to each other. When they say Gentiles, they think non-believers. That's what it meant for them in that context right there. He didn't just mean non-Jews. He meant non-believers at this point. So when he mentions Gentiles, he's saying non-believers act like how James and John are acting. You're acting like you don't know God when you want to be above others and when you want others to see you as great. Let me say that again. You are acting like non-believers when you want to be above others and when you want others to see you as great. Jesus says, that's, that's Jesus' point. Look how the Gentiles act. 
That's how they act. And he says this in verse 43. But it shall not be so among you. Jesus is now referring to his followers. Christians are not supposed to be like that according to Jesus. It shall not be so among you. He says, he just puts a standard out there. You're not supposed to be like that. You're not supposed to be like the world. You and I, (laughs) we're flooded with more, I don't want to use the word, I don't know, indoctrination of the world's way of thinking than I would say any Christians have been ever on planet Earth. And we're just constantly bombarded with stimulation to our brain, trying to tell us how to think. There's not even, there's even programs named, uh, created called algorithms that learn how we think. They are programmed to put in front of our eyes what they see as patterns of things we look at, how long you pause your screen and stare at something on Facebook. It takes all that into account, and it says, now, stimulate his thinking with more of this, more. And we're flooded. We're flooded. That's why I call Sunday morning a detox. It's just detox from the world. We need it. And I want to tell you something. Anytime you're tempted to think that you don't want to go to church on Sunday, this is what I've taught my children for years. Now they've learned, just don't say this phrase anymore. But anytime they used to say, I don't want to go to church, I would always respond with, that shows that you need to go. Anytime you have a thought of, I don't want to go to church, that means, uh uh-oh, the toxins have taken over. And now they've gotten into your thinking. Anytime you think, I don't want to go to church, that shows, I better go to church. This is detox from the world. And you went, we need it. We need it. We need each other. There are no lone ranger Christians. And God's never created us to be that way. We need the body. So Jesus, please, tell us how we're supposed to be then. He says, it shall not be so among you. Please tell us then how we're supposed to be. Look at the end of verse 43. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Verse 44. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Guys, we're getting into the most important part of the entire sermon here. So if you're feeling a little little bit sleepy, straighten yourself up, take some deep breaths. When I was teaching, this would be the point where I would ask people to stand up and stretch. That just doesn't seem appropriate for Sunday morning in the sanctuary, right? We're just not used to that. It would throw us off way too much. But this is the part where you really need to listen closely if you haven't heard anything else. I want you to look at the contrast and comparisons here that Jesus, is make, that Jesus makes. Whoever would be great must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. Do you see the contrast he's making here? Big contrast. Greatness compared to a servant. First compared to a slave. This is intentional. This word servant is the word diakonos in Greek. It's the word that we use for the word deacon. Now, because of context, we know that this isn't referring to the office of deacon. Though the same word, diakonos, is used when referring to the 
office of deacon in a church. But we know that according to context, he's not referring to that because actually this word diakonos is used in a lot of different places in the New Testament, not just in those portions of Titus and First and Second Timothy where he talks about the office. But did you know that sometimes this word diakonos is even translated minister? Someone who ministers. It's also used for the leadership role, like I said. But this word has the idea of someone who carries out God's plan for God's people. That's how you serve your fellow man and be great, according to Jesus. You carry out God's plan for God's people, and so you serve them in that way. You are a diakonos in that way. You are a minister. You work for people. And then he says this, whoever would be first must be slave. Now, this is, a, a, this is a totally different word. This is the word doulos in Greek, and it means real, true slave. Literally, someone who belongs to another without any ownership rights of his own or her own. It's really that word. Now, though we see that as negative because... Not all slavery has been good, of course. I want you to know this. The New Testament uses this word with high dignity when it's referring to believers. Believers who willingly live under Christ's authority as his devoted followers, as Christ's slaves. So Jesus is saying, carry out God's plan for God's people and living under Christ's authority in service to God's people That's the way to be great. And that's the way to be first, he's saying. And again, it's so opposite, so opposite to what James and John were thinking. We want to be, we want to be honored, highly honored. And Jesus saying, no, 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 no. You be low. Being being low, the lowly servant of others. That's that's greatness in the kingdom. Lowly servant. These people, people in the kingdom who are the greatest, the ones that we're going to learn about in heaven that are highly exalted, guess what? No one's ever going to have heard of them. No one's ever really going to know much about them. When I think of some of the ones that are going to be the highest in the kingdom... I think of people like little old ladies with leathery brown skin in a village in Central America who lives on very little and who gives and gives and prays and prays and serves and serves and doesn't blow a trumpet about it and who is a mighty prayer warrior and accomplished much through her prayers and nobody knows no one knows I think of people even among us like the um, like the Jeff Berry's among us and the David Holtz among us who just serve quietly humbly and nobody knows about it 
You know how many times I've found, I have found out that those two men have spent their own money on stuff for the church and didn't tell anybody? And I said, brothers, listen, we have money for that. We have, we have, we have a, a whole account for that. <laughs> I didn't tell anybody. I'm like, stop doing that. Thank you, but we can do that. I didn't tell anybody. I'm telling you now, but God's still going to bless them. It's not like he's going to take his, their blessing away now because they didn't tell you. But I just think about those that serve in the background humbly, lovingly, willingly, joyfully. And God says, those are the great ones. Those are the great ones. And that's the opposite from the world, isn't it? We like to exalt those who can, wow, look what he can do. Wow, he's like no one else. And he brags about it. Then Jesus does something spectacular. His teaching was already a wonderful gift to us. What he has said already was a wonderful gift and perfect. But then he ties this bow around it and completes it and makes it even better by saying what he says next. Look at verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Guys, I have one more page of notes. Hang with me. You're doing so good. This is the key verse. This is that key verse that the entire book of Mark is centered on. As you guys might remember, the title that I chose for our entire sermon series for the book of Mark was Follow the Leader. Remember that? for this entire series that we're still going to be in for probably a year, I know, but isn't it good? Not because I'm teaching it, because it's so rich and from God. Jesus is the perfect leader for us. He's the perfect leader for us to follow because he's our servant leader. He leads by serving and by doing for us that what we cannot do for ourselves And in doing so, he shows us that he's the perfect example of greatness in the kingdom. He is the perfect example of greatness in the kingdom. Now notice he used the word even. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Even. Now that makes a very strong point. If there's anyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth who's worthy of being served, who ought to be served, who should be served, it's the Lord Jesus. Would you agree? From all eternity past, you got to think where Jesus came from. Think of him before this moment, where we are in Mark. Think of what his existence was like before this point. From all eternity past, angels had sung his praises. They had adored him for all of his glorious perfections, loudly proclaiming, holy, 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 before him. For billions of years, we don't know. I don't know when the angels were created. 
But I know Jesus was never created. But since they've been created, there have been special ones just designed to fly around him and sing those praises so loudly that Isaiah said the sound of their voice shook the temple itself. And that's been going on for eternity past. He's no less perfect and he's no less worthy of praise and no less worthy of honor and service even though he put on flesh and has temporarily veiled some of his glory. He's no less worthy of, of any of that. That, still sh- that should still be happening to him. So when he says, even I didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's huge. Do you see how huge that is? That's gigantic. That's the perfect way to end that teaching. That's the most perfect example that could ever be made about how service should be done. Even though you could be worthy of something greater. Why did you come, Lord? He says, to give my life as a ransom for many. He came to pay the necessary payment for the many whom the Father had chosen before the foundation of the world, that they would be holy and blameless before him. And God's Messiah would take the punishment for them that they deserve, though he did not deserve it. As I said before, that's the one place in the entire universe the wrath of God had no business falling was on that man. So don't you see how foolish it is to speak or to even think about your own glory when standing before that wonderful man, our Lord Jesus Christ. So truly knowing him, by the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, creates a humility within you because you finally come to understand that you don't deserve any glory. What do you actually deserve for your sins? You know the answer. Only damnation. That's what you actually deserve. And Jesus took it on your behalf. He was the ransom for your crimes against God. Jesus paid it all. What sacrificial service. And what a perfect example our Lord has left for us. Last two sentences here. Fight against those natural, sinful tendencies that you have within you to chase after self-greatness and self-exaltation. The way to do that is to immerse yourself in God's word and see the perfect example of greatness that's only found in Jesus. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this truth. We are so grateful that you speak so clearly and grateful that you speak to our hearts. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit has spoken to hearts today, opened eyes, even converted souls that may not know you yet. Lord, I pray. I pray that you did a work in hearts that may not even know you yet. And I pray that, of course, that you did work in hearts 
for those of us that do know you, Lord. We love your word. It's, it's our language now, and so I pray that you used it to speak clearly to our hearts and help us to love you more, walk in greater obedience to you, and walk low like you did, Lord Jesus, in service to others. And we thank you for all this in Christ's name. Amen.